Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 39, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name, again, is Rick. I'm author of the recently released book, Spiritual Grit, and some time ago released book, Jesus-Centered Life, and editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. And uh, as we've been talking about this this whole month, I've also, I'm also on the creative team that uh, that created this new resource called Friends of God, a Discipleship Experience. It's a 12-session discipleship experience for small groups or maybe a church adult class, or even we created it to be useful for either teenagers or adults. So if you're a youth pastor out there listening and want to take your students through a discipleship experience that will give them a foundation that will stay with them the rest of their life, this is it. It's called Friends of God, a Discipleship Experience. Uh, we'll put a link to, to this on our podcast page so you can go check it out as well. You can get a little sampler of it to see what this is like, but highly creative. Um, we spent about a year and a half developing it, interactive and experiential. It includes a full-scale documentary that was created just for this resource, filmed in the Philippines, about a, a what you might call an everyday guy who ends up living an extraordinary life in his own discipleship journey. So anyway, can't speak highly enough of this brand new resource that we just released, so please do check it out. And today... We finish off our September exploration into discipleship, which is pretty much the foundation of our relationship with Jesus. We've talked before about, well, what does discipleship actually mean? It's kind of taken on its own meaning, depending on what church you're from and what, what brand of the church you're from. And, but really, it's, it's what does it look like to grow in our relationship with Jesus? How do you become someone who is all in for Jesus? And that is essentially the, the mission of this podcast as well. Paying ridiculous attention to Jesus, the purpose of that is to get closer and closer to him until you are caught forever in his orbit and he becomes the center of your life. So, so really, this podcast, in, uh, described another way, this is a discipleship podcast. How do you, how do you grow close to Jesus? So, so how do we move toward maturity in our faith? This will be our last episode uh, as we focus on this this month. Um, and one way to get at this is you can think about who has influenced you in a powerful way in your life, uh, who has, whose maturity in their own life with Jesus has kind of spilled over into your life, and how do people like that get to be like that? How are they mature in the first place? Well, one thing we want to point out from the beginning is maturity and discipleship, by extension, is really not about how much you know. No matter how much your church insists that it's about how much you know, that's, that's not how Jesus treated discipleship. It's really about who you're becoming and how deeply you're attached to him. The reason why we push discipleship as knowing stuff is it's because we can measure that. We can measure how much a person knows, but it's a lot harder to measure the impact of a person's presence on your life. You know it's there, you, you see the outcome and the fruit of it, but it's hard to measure that. So a person's maturing presence is the real impact of discipleship on our lives. So the path into maturity is not really that measurable, <laughs> which frustrates especially Americans who want everything to be measurable, but it's not a sort of check-the-box process, uh, one that's often been sold to us in the Church. True discipleship operates more like an infection uh, we're going to make that case in just a minute. It's gross, but <laughs> we're going to make that case. And that, that slight, ever-so-lilting giggle you hear in the background is Steph Hilbury. That probably wasn't really a giggle. It was more like a chortle. A chortle seems like at a lower decibel. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> Rick and I are okay. a little slap happy. Yeah. It's Be a, forewarned. Yeah, it's a Thursday when we're <laughs> recording this, so we've had a whole week of brain drain. So uh, Steph joins us today to explore this. We've, we've had a really good conversation about this already, and we're going to try to transfer that now into the podcast. So discipleship translates 
in the end into what you might call an integrated life. So uh, a lot of times, uh, this is true of me growing up in the church, I sort of compartmentalized my life. I had my sort of church life and my church activities and even my church way of talking, and we have our own church language. Lots of people have poked fun at that. My friend uh, John Acuff, who's now a New York Times bestselling author, he started out by writing a book called Stuff Christians Like. Is that what it was called? Mm -hmm, Yep. Stuff Christians Like. And he was just basically poking fun at all of the eccentricities of Christian culture, including the 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 thing the strange things we say and the strange things we do. So discipleship in the church has often fit into that in in the sense that the church treats discipleship like like it's a compartment in our life, that there's some stuff you need to know in order to be a maturing disciple, but they don't that stuff often doesn't have much to do with the other interests in your life, mm-hmm. like the TV shows you watch or the kinds of sports that you're into or the the uh, the online activities that you're into, discipleship rarely sort of spills over into those things, or at least it's not framed that way. It's framed as uh, kind of storing up knowledge, being able to maybe um, defend your faith is is a way of describing what the church typically describes as a as a disciple. So Steph used an an interesting way of referring to maturity and our integrated life when we were talking about this, she, she said that we, are, uh, we ourselves, the, the people that we are, are like an imperfect sermon. So I wanted Steph to explain what the heck she means by sure. that. So when I think about discipleship, I, I definitely feel like there is a, a definition. I think when I was growing up in youth group or when I was in church— um, there was this idea that when you discipled people, you brought them to church, or you invited them to come to small group, or you asked them to join your Bible study, or maybe if you reached out to them in their everyday life, the goal ultimately was still to get them to do those things. And that was discipleship. Discipleship looked like getting people to church functions, essentially. Um, and for for me, I feel like my idea about discipleship has evolved a bit in that I believe that discipleship is a little bit more like everyday life. It's not necessarily church activities. So when I say that we're our lives are an imperfect sermon, what I mean is that discipleship is happening in every aspect of our lives, and that people on the outside of Christianity and people on the inside of Christianity are watching what we're doing, and they're not just watching how we are at church or our church activities. They're watching the entirety of our life. How do you behave when someone cuts you off on the road? How do you handle your finances? What do you? What's your tone when you answer the phone when your spouse calls you? These are all these these small things that come cumulatively compile the sermon our life is telling. Every day, and I say imperfect because it is imperfect for sure, and perfection is um, a completely futile goal. So let's just dismiss ourselves of the idea that that's ever going to happen. Um, but that doesn't mean that that it's not all being woven together into the the sermon our life is telling. And to me, that's actually discipleship. That each and every single component of our life is an opportunity to disciple. What's interesting is when you call it imp- uh, our life is an imperfect sermon. So a typical sermon has three points and five things to do at the end. <laughs> and maybe a clever acronym. Yeah, you know. So if you're living your life uh, as a sermon, um, if you lived your life as a perfect sermon, you'd be the least popular person in your neighborhood because you'd always be giving them three points of truth and five things to do. Mm-hmm. So it's totally an imperfect sermon in every way mm-hmm. because it's what you're really saying is the essence of our life kind of spills onto people. And when you said people are watching you, I remember when we were talking about mm-hmm. this, um, I think watching is a, is a good word, but it, it kind of has some connotations that people are uh, kind of picking apart what you're doing and assessing it and analyzing it. And I think it's a little looser than that. People are experiencing us. And the experience of us uh, affects our uh, our understanding of what a disciple is. So if I'm—you gave an example of how, how do you answer the phone when your spouse calls. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting example. And if somebody in the, in the office cubicle next to you is always hearing you answer one way to an outside person, but answer a different way to your, their spouse when they—and 
and you know that they're a follower of Jesus, and you kind of don't like the way they answer the phone when it's their spouse, that has this kind of subtle underlying impact on you because you're experiencing sort of the inside of that person through something they're doing on the outside, right? So these things that we do on the outside lead people back to what's true on the inside of us, and whatever's true on the inside of us is sort of like the nuclear core of your person. That I mean by that, that when we're around other people, their radioactivity from their nuclear core spills out onto us, and that affects us. And when you're around other people, you're always influencing those other people, even if you never open your mouth, your presence, who you are as a person, is impacting the people around you. And Steph, you pointed out in our conversation before the podcast that that in the New Testament, discipleship was lived out in community, in the company of other people. Day in, day out, they were growing together and rubbing off on each other. So it, it reiterates that the, the gospel, for instance, the good news of Jesus, is not a speech. Mm-hmm. It's not a set of principles, and it's not a set of argument points about what's true. It's not a, set, it's not a doctrine or a creed. Mm-hmm. Um, the gospel isn't any of those things. It's the impact of your presence and your life as one who has been transformed, redeemed, and renovated by the presence of Jesus, the intimate presence of Jesus in your life. So how are people experiencing the lifestyle you live, the choices you make? Even, um, I, I don't know if you mentioned it this time, but you did in our in our planning conversation, which I thought was fascinating. What are they observing about the way that you take care of yourself, your health? So so let me ask, what, what, why would that be a part of our discipleship influence, the way that we take the what we eat and whether we stay fit or not? Aren't those a different compartment from our following of Jesus? Isn't that sort of a neutral thing that's outside of our following of Jesus' life? Why, why would our health factor into this? Well, I, I don't think that we are as compartmentalized as we think that we are. And I think that we we might compartmentalize, you know, for instance, you might compartmentalize your your diet and your fitness decisions outside of your faith. I think a lot of us are guilty of doing that with all kinds of areas of our life. But I do think that when we encounter other people, we actually don't compartmentalize them as much as we compartmentalize ourselves. You know, when we oh, watch other people, I think that we... Um, we see them and we're trying to figure out how the different pieces of them integrate into a whole person. Um, and, and I think that, you know, we run into this in politics all the time, right? This argument that like, well, what they do in the office is separate from what they do personally. And that never really flies very well. I think most of us have a sense of, well, but they're this, they're, it's all one person we're talking about here. So, you know, and I, I do think for different people, they're paying attention to what they value, right? So some people in your life may really value health and fitness, and so they're, they're really watching that area with perhaps more scrutiny. And they're curious about how you, how you express yourself, your whole self, in this one area of your life. And other people may just not really care that much about it, and they're really not noticing it, but they're noticing something different. Yeah, it's interesting that right now when recording this, Brett Kavanaugh, the, the man that's up for uh, nomination to the Supreme Court, is in the middle of a huge controversy about whether or not he, 35 years ago, took advantage of a a woman when he was in high school and sexually assaulted her. And uh, uh, she says he did. He says he never did. One thing amidst the swirl of opinion surrounding this is uh, many of the old-time friends of Brett Kavanaugh are saying things like, this is totally inconsistent with who I know him to be. So when you hear a statement like that, it doesn't mean that he didn't do it. It just means my experience of them, the, the thing that he's accused of, doesn't fit with my experience of him. We often hear of you know, uh, public figures or people who do things that their close friends even say, wow, that is, if he really did that, that's totally out of character for mm-hmm. them. What those people are saying is, this is how I've experienced this person, and it's, it is easier than we think to uh, compartmentalize our life so much so that people experiencing us don't really know us. They don't really see the congruent person in front of them. They only see what we project. 
So it is possible when people are putting these pieces together, they, they can only put the pieces together with what they can access. Sure. And we're pretty good at keeping stuff away from accessibility. Um, but they're still trying to, I, I agree with you, they're trying to make sense of who you are as a person. Uh, all of us think in narratives, uh, kind of. Instead of a linear equation for a person, we have sort of a narrative about who they are inside. So when they do or say something that doesn't fit the narrative, it's really dissonance-producing. And when they do something that really fits our narrative, it only further undergirds it and further cements it that, oh, yeah, I know this person. Um, so so it's, it's interesting, too, that the, this whole uh, example we brought up about health— so about four years ago, I lost 45 pounds, and it's a long story about how that happened, but it was mostly changing my diet um, and some changing my fitness regimen, and these things I've sort of kept till this day. So I lost 45 pounds. So was I more of a disciple when I was overweight by 45 pounds, or am I more of a disciple now? Well, I think the weight situation is probably immaterial to that question, mm -hmm. but one thing I know that's true is that I had compartmentalized away my diet and my fitness regimen as outside, really, my relationship with Jesus. So I have to say that, that in this process of losing 45 pounds, I felt more congruent, honest, and authentic, because I had now included this inside my relationship with Jesus instead of outside. I started to see why it mattered that I was not uh, as overweight as I had been. And I started to see why it mattered that I was taking better care of my body. All of this was integrated into my relationship with Jesus. So before that happened, I was kind of hiding this part of my life. I mean, it was hiding in plain sight, but I was hiding it in the sense that I didn't treat it as a valuable thing in my life. And I think that's kind of what we're trying to get at, is how do you live in a congruent way where there's nothing in your life that is outside of your relationship with Jesus or your your growth as a disciple and your maturity. We were talking before about, uh, I'd watched a, a film on the airplane coming back from Kenya, airplanes, I should say. I was in the air for like 20 hours, so plenty of time to watch movies. <laughs> and I watched Whiplash because uh, some friends of mine had urged me to watch it, um, but they did also warn me that the language was bad, <laughs> and they probably understated how bad the language is in this film. But J.K. Simmons, who is one of the lead actors in this film, he plays a, a music, a jazz teacher. Um, he's the one that has just maybe the foulest mouth I've ever heard in a movie. Uh, but he won an Academy Award for his performance, and I can see why. It is a very powerful movie. It's one of those movies that by at the end of it, I'm just crying. I can't stop crying. It's so powerful. But after I watched the movie, I started thinking about who could I recommend this mm. movie to? And th this is where it starts to expose our congruence as a person. For me, watching Whiplash and exposing myself to this really harsh language was really integral and part of my whole journey as a disciple. I felt closer to Jesus and understanding what he's doing in my life more after watching Whiplash. It fed into my maturity with Jesus. But then I have to think about, who do I recommend this to? And, oh, I wish I could show this film to the teenagers in our small group and us talk about it, but I can't do that. So I'm making decisions here, uh, and these are all discipleship decisions I'm making about who should be exposed to this and who not, and that my integrated life may not look like your integrated life or anyone else's integrated life. All of this is really determined intimately with the Spirit in us. Um, but that opens up a whole mm -hmm. <laughs> box of confusion about uh, what does it really mean it, um, to live an integrated life, and what, what in that integrative life doesn't belong, for instance, in a maturing disciple's life. So those are some, some big questions. And by the way, any, as I kind of ran on about that stuff, anything that you were thinking about while I was talking about that as far as each of us has our own integrated life, uh, how do you resonate or not resonate with that? Oh, I just think it's a, it's a sticky, murky mess. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's the, not everything is relative, right? I mean, relativism is, uh, can be real poisonous to the integrity of faith, 
Um, but at the same time, there's so much that is a personal relationship and a personal experience. Um, and I, all I could think of was, man, we really like things to be a little bit clearer cut than they are. You know, we just are uncomfortable. We like, we're, we, we have user's manual thinking. We really we do. We want to turn to the user's manual really and say, do. okay, you now what do we do here? And, <laughs> and, uh, there isn't one obviously for life. Even if we think there is, and sometimes people call the Bible a user's manual for life and wow, well, I, I mean, just take even one day of your life. Uh, and the varied things that you're involved in and the decisions you make, you can't find a user's manual description or guidance about everything that even happened to you today. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Jesus meant it that way. He didn't mean for us to be in close relationship with printed words in the Bible. The, The Bible's purpose is to reveal the heart of God and the purpose of Jesus, and to give us all that we need as an on-ramp into a active, everyday relationship with him, where the things that we decide during the day, we are guided by in the moment. We don't um, have to go open up our Bible and find what we need to do in the moment, and Jesus meant it for, to be this way. He gave us the Spirit for this reason. So what, what's interesting is that whether it's films or fitness activities or anything that you're into, whatever it is you're immersing yourself in, that is a context for your discipleship. And I would say you are discipling people. Now, you could be doing it with intention that guides people into freedom, or you can be doing it in a way that disciples them into something different. And I think that's one of the things that we'll talk about in a sec here when we look at Paul. But I think that there's this this idea like, oh, am I discipling people or not? The answer is yes, you are. You yes. are always discipling people in every aspect of your life. Yep. And the question is, uh, are you discipling them in a way that draws them toward the center of Jesus, or are you not? Yeah. And I think that, that the more integrated you are, the easier it is for you to do that. The more compartmentalized you are, the more difficult it is. Yeah, Jesus said this profound truth, uh, where our treasure is, there our heart is. It's very simple. Whatever you treasure in life, your heart's going to be there. And discipleship is wherever your heart is. So if your heart's there, then you are having a discipleship impact wherever that heart is. That, that's where your radioactivity is. The heart is the thing that's producing the radioactivity. So wherever your heart is, wherever your treasure is, there's your heart, and your heart is central to your discipleship. So you mentioned this thing that Paul talks about. This is a fascinating sort of defense, I guess you could call it. He's Paul in First uh, Corinthians is trying to defend why he appears to be different in different situations. He's trying to explain, well, here's what I'm doing, and I'm not flighty, I'm not a chameleon, uh, I am simply trying to adapt myself into various situations so that my impact can be magnified in those situations. So let me just read to you from uh, 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19, and we're going to go all the way through verse 27. So here Paul says, Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people so that I can bring many to Christ. For example, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. And when I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. And when I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. So when I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ." Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadowboxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I might uh, myself be disqualified. So one thing I want to point out uh, right at the top is, I think in this little section, which uh, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard 
this little section before, but you probably haven't heard both of these things together. And uh, we, we treat the, these two little sections here as separate thoughts that Paul had. The first one is about him morphing himself to these different environments. The second one is about, hey, don't you realize only one person wins the race when there's a race going on? But actually, he's, he's trying to explain why he morphs himself to these various situations. He's trying to win. <laughs> he's, he's trying to win a prize, and he's basically saying, hey, if you're going to win, you better think about how, how you can win the race and so when I'm with the Jews, I'm thinking about how I can win that race. And when I'm with the, when I'm with the Gentiles, I'm thinking about how I can win that race. And in either case, I'm thinking it through. Uh, what do I need to do to reach these people? Because people are radically different. So I, I think I'd like to start out by saying what Paul is saying here is, I'm an integrated person, and therefore I can shift my approach and even shift my lifestyle when I'm with certain people, and shift it back again when I'm with other certain people, because I have a solid core. Kind of like a, not something that we immediately understand when he's shifting back and forth between these two these, these uh, environments. We think, man, Paul's all over the place. But actually, he's able to do that because of his solid, integrated core. So before I go on any further, Steph, when I read that story, what, what are some things that pop into your head about Paul? Oh, gosh. I mean, instantly I feel convicted because his love and desire to set people free was the driving thing in his life, which you can see how he's talking about discipleship. I mean, he is talking about his mission and purpose is so focused and so passionate that he's disciplining himself, even physically disciplining himself in order to do this work. And I just think, wow, when I say that that I'm discipling people, I, I'm convicted because I don't disciple people with the level of intention and love that he does. And he, this is the reason why Paul is such a, a role model for any of us who follow Christ, is because he's just, not only do you sense his love for people, but he's focused and he knows what's most important to him, and it drives his life in the way he talks about it, even. Um, so I, I just, I'm, I'm a little blown away, honestly, by even hearing that again, how committed he is and how I have room to grow in that area. <laughs> and and he's, he's, kind of, he's kind of saying, I, I study these people in these situations. I'm paying attention to them, and I'm trying to remove some obvious obstacles from them encountering what I'm about. So really, it goes back to Paul's the impact of Paul's presence in people's lives. If he's among Jews who keep the law in a very observant way, which Paul was quite able to do because he lived that way for most of his life, uh, when he was around those people, why would he purposefully avoid keeping the law in obvious ways? Because that would block people's experience of his presence because they would just fixate on all of the things that he wasn't doing right. So he was basically saying, I'm trying to remove some of those obstacles so that they can experience the sort of purity of Jesus in me without those blockages getting in their way. So I'm going to try to study what there's what I need to do and remove those as often as possible. And I, I like to call uh, Paul one of the shrewdest people that ever lived. I, real, I think that's why Jesus knocked him off his donkey and said, why are you persecuting me, and blinded him for three days. Jesus saw Paul as a shrewd person and knew that he needed a shrewd person to advance the kingdom of God in the world post-resurrection. And so Paul's shrewdness, I think, sticks out all over the place all the time. And the way I define—I wrote a whole book called Shrewd. It focuses on the parable of the shrewd manager— and how shrewdness is really a kingdom of God character quality that, that we typically don't pay attention to, but that Jesus wants to grow in us. And the way I define shrewdness in the book is um, understanding how things work, and then finding a point of leverage once you understand how things work, and then leveraging the situation toward the kingdom of God as a result of that. People that use shrewdness as a, a tool for evil or a tool for self-serving desires they do the same thing. They study how things work, and then they leverage, but their leverage is leveraging it toward their own self-serving goals. If you're shrewd like Jesus, you're leveraging the situation toward the kingdom of God. Um, so Paul here is studying how things work, 
with Jews and Gentiles, figuring out how to leverage uh, his presence as best he can to uh, expose them to who Jesus is and remove any obstacles that there might be in the way for that. So you mentioned before, Steph, that that all of this um, is really a process, that the discipleship and the impact of our presence is a process that involves real people. And I, I love what you said. You said uh, it means being real with Jesus and being real with others. What, what does that mean exactly, being real with Jesus and then being real with others? What are, the, what are those two things? Well, I mean, we talk a lot about an authentic relationship with others and with Jesus. I think that being real with Jesus means that you're not uh, editorializing yourself in his presence. I think a lot of us kind of catch ourselves doing that sometimes. You mean um, editing yourself? Yeah, yeah. You're kind of, um, you're holding things back or you're presenting even the words you use. If you find yourself in prayer talking to Jesus and you're changing how you talk, uh, to me that, you know, that's a sign of, wow, I could I could maybe drop that a little bit and talk to him just the way I talk to everyone. Um, but I think that part of what, what caused me to talk about this authenticity is that I see in an effort to disciple, in an effort to present um, just a, a, a Christian attitude, a Christian perspective, a Christian life to, to outsiders, to people in the world, sometimes I feel like we present something that's a little superficial. Hmm. Um, and this is this is in part because we've been kind of taught that discipleship happens in a certain way, and you, you act a certain way, and, um, and I think that on some level, most of us are able to kind of snuff out, like, that you're not really telling the whole story here. You're showing a part of it. And I'll give an example that's maybe not based on Christianity. So I, I've mentioned this lots of times before. Health and fitness is a hobby of mine. I follow lots of people online who are in the community. And I notice that I'm most attracted to the people who also show me their other their life. They they talk about their vulnerabilities. They share about their family. They they talk about other things that they're interested in. They talk about their emotions, things they're struggling with. The people who exclusively and only ever talk about this one aspect of their life, and they do it in a way that's kind of, you know, I'm in teacher mode now. I'm going to share with you what I've learned and what I'm doing and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Um, I, I'm not as attracted to them. I have a difficult time connecting to them, though they may be quite knowledgeable and very, very skilled and very good at what they're talking about. They're not real people to me. They're one-dimensional. And sometimes I feel like as Christians, we present ourselves in this realm of Christianity very one-dimensionally. And I think that's that's a hard thing for people. They want to know who you are as a full, holistic, total person, not just this kind of sliver of your faith detached from everything else. Yeah, and, and underlying what you're saying here is that we... we um we make a big mistake in that we think the presentation of ourselves is what is impacting people, but actually it's that hidden nuclear core that is really impacting people. And when the presentation of yourself is the way you're describing it, sort of inauthentic, it keeps people from being impacted by your real core. Now, why would we do this? Why would we throw out the presentation of ourselves hiding the real us? Why would we do that? Well, we're afraid. That yeah. if people experience the real us, it, 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 at least in the case of our discipleship journey, well, if they really knew the real me, if, if I didn't clean up and edit who I am, then I'm not going to really convince them about the importance and beauty of, of who Jesus is. So my daughter, Emma, sometimes will say something like, so I've mentioned before that my wife and I have, uh, we are both uh, sort of what I'd call passionate people, <laughs> and so when we have a disagreement, it's a passionate disagreement. It's perfectly in line with who we are. We, are, we don't have quiet disagreements, I would say. We're not screaming and yelling, but we're not, our disagreements are not who, quiet. Who are these people with yeah, quiet? Yeah, yeah. Send us a note if you are one of these people with quiet disagreements, because you're, appar you're rare. Apparently, my daughter Emma knows lots of these people, because she will... <laughs> She will say that, oh, when we, when Bev and I are having a, 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 a conflict, she'll say something like, you know, when I'm at so-and-so's house, they don't have fights like this, and uh, we get this thrown back in our faces all the time. And I remember saying one time, Emma, 
you're our daughter, so you get to see the private moments. But those people are not showing you their private moments. Those people, when you're over at somebody's house, just like when you have friends over at our house, we're not having a conflict in front of your friends, and they're not having their conflicts in front of you. But Emma's Emma's sense is that somehow we're odd. My wife and I are odd, and we have conflicts a lot more often than all of the good people in the neighborhood uh, do. She just doesn't realize, because she's still young, that they're just not living those things out. They're presenting themselves a certain way, um, which is fine, especially with, with kids. But when you're presenting yourself a certain way, you cannot have intimacy with those people. You, the only way you can have a close, intimate relationship is if you're really experiencing the real person. Right. And those opportunities don't come around a lot because we're used to sort of protecting those aspects of our life. Mm-hmm. But the truth is our, our true discipleship impact is, in our real, is locked up in our real person. So it really comes down to you could probably fashion your presentation of yourself in a way that you think may uh, convince others that following Jesus is the way to go. But those things never really have great impact. The truth is, your own transformed heart, exactly how it is, is what is really impacting others. I, I've told this often that the the first book I ever wrote was was called The Family Friendly Church, and I co-wrote it with a man named Ben Freudenberg. And uh, Ben uh, it was a brilliant, innovative pastor who had uh, conceived a new way for his church to much more include families in the process of spiritual growth instead of compartmentalizing people away from each other. He, he had figured out a way for families to grow together, and he wanted to write a book, but he wasn't a writer. So group recruited me to write this book with Ben, and I had really no desire to co-write someone else's vision. I just didn't. Uh, it felt like my day job, um, <laughs> and I, I just didn't want to do it. But the, I decided to do it in the end because as I got to know Ben, I thought, this guy is a transformational person. He's a, he's a mature person. His radioactivity is really powerful. <laughs> and I thought, if I hung around Ben because I'm writing a book with him, I think what he has would change me as a person. So that's why I decided to write it. And I was right. Because I hung out with Ben so much— it wasn't any particular thing he said or the way he presented himself. It was just the nature of who Ben is, how he thinks, what he's passionate about, the, the things he likes and doesn't like, the, the little habit patterns of his life all spilled over onto me. They influenced and affected me, and it, it reminds me of what I wrote about in Spiritual Grit, what the rabbi-Talmud relationship was really all about. The student attached himself to a rabbi— not so that the rabbi could download all of the good teachings from the Bible, but so that the student could be immersed in the life of the rabbi. The, the student actually lived in the home with the rabbi and picked up on all of the nuances, the radioactive core of the rabbi, and it influenced and formed who they became. So it gives us a pattern and a, and a path in our own relationship with Jesus. To be with him, to abide in him, as the Bible says, is, is to soak and immerse ourselves in his presence, the things he likes and doesn't like, the passions that he has, the, the reasons why he engaged people so differently um, according to who they were. All of these things start to kind of get into our bones and start to transform us. So if we are, we are saying, my, hope, my life is a sermon, an imperfect sermon, not just my words, then we have evidence of this in the stories I just told, Ben's life was a sermon, and it was impacting me on so many levels, but it wasn't the words that he spoke. It was his transformational presence. So I've mentioned before on the podcast this, uh, this author named Edwin Friedman who wrote A Failure of Nerve. It's a must-read book. Just give yourself time to read it, because it's thick. But um, Edwin Friedman, uh, in his book A Failure of Nerve, spotlights the value of being a self-differentiated person. And a self-differentiated person is a person who has a separate identity apart from the need for another to define them. So self-differentiation, maybe a good way of explaining it is um, when a good friend or somebody you respect very much disagrees with you, and instead of 
uh, caving into that to appease the other person, you, you feel a sense of relaxed calmness about staying right where you are, because you, you know what you're saying or living out is true. You don't simply morph yourself according to the situation. And this is what I'm saying Paul did by adapting what he did in these various situations, because he had his own sense of identity, his core identity, he could adapt what he did without losing himself in the process. So you said something, uh, Steph, the other day that I think feeds into this whole conversation. You said you're suspicious of people who use their spirituality as a mask. And what, what does that mean, that they use their spirituality as a mask? And well, how, how does that feed into this conversation about being real? I think that it, it's similar to what I was just saying, which is um, you can share a lot of your knowledge about your spirituality, but if you're closed off and you're not actually inviting people into who you really are, um, I think that that's it causes not just me. I mean, I think it causes people, anyone to kind of be like, who, but who are you really? If that's all you're really showing, um, then I don't, I'm not sure I really know who you are. And I think this is why Jesus was so perplexing to people is because he was the spiritual teacher who was constantly bleeding out into other areas of life in ways that were totally surprising to people. And, um, I'm just so thankful that we had, I'm so thankful we had a savior who was a real person, you know, because I think it's easy for us sometimes to even ha- we struggle with God, right? Cause God is this spiritual entity and he's so other from us and we are hardwired to connect to real flesh and blood humans who, who mystify us from time to time. And when, when we are so perfectly spiritual in our presentation to other people, I, I think that we, we don't know what to do with that. Jesus is a great example of our need for something different, something mm. authentic that you can experience that's familiar. Mm. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called Till We Have Faces. It's one of the more difficult books I read when I was in college. Uh, it was based on a myth. But um, I love the premise of the book, is that uh, Jesus, his work in us, his transformational work in us, is to give us a new face, uh, not, a, the, not an edited face that we present to people, because that's kind of what we're talking about here. When we wear a mask or we present ourselves a certain way, we're putting out there an edited face. We're in control and managing it. What Jesus wants to do is give us a new face, transform our faith. And Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces, means he was trying to suggest that this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving us a new face so that we don't have to manage ourselves. We're simply living out our transformed heart around others, and we're not uh, wearing masks, we're not managing ourselves, we're simply living out our transformed heart with others. So the as we wrap up here, the question is, well, how do we, how does that happen? I mean, how do we have an immersive relationship with Jesus? What, what is it that we do on an everyday basis? And another way of asking this is, how, does, how do mature people become mature? What is it that's going on in their lives that brings maturity to them? So I thought, Steph, maybe we could just talk a little bit about our own life experience of knowing mature people and understanding our own maturing process. How, how does a person become more mature? How does a person immerse themselves in, in the life of Jesus in such a way that our own presence is changed by that? What are some things that pop into your head? Well, I mean, immersion is when you spend your time in the presence of someone. So I think, gosh, almost every podcast this comes up because it's so key. You have to spend time with Jesus. You need to talk to him and spend time in prayer and conversation and in his word. And that needs to be a regular part of your life. Um, It's certainly difficult to do if you're not kind of starting at least with that aspect of um, sort of daily life. It's kind of how we we immerse ourselves in our families, we immerse ourselves in our coworkers because we're in their presence all the time, and that's the same thing with our faith. Uh, we, we had talked in our discussion before the podcast about, well, what are the markers of—Jesus um, G- says, go, go out and make disciples. Mm. So what are the markers of that? How do we even know that that's happening? And, and uh, that starts to get into this territory of what's measurable— but I thought, you know, I think the evidence of whether we're making disciples or not 
is when we start to see that uh, evidence of who we are splashing onto others. Like I, I've experienced this in surprising ways. Even in the last week, one of the teenagers in the small group that I lead, uh, we were talking about, so I don't even remember what we were talking about, but he raised his hand and he said, you know, as someone we all know really well says quite a lot, we were created to find our identity outside of ourselves. And that was his preface to his comment. And I thought, oh my gosh, I had no idea that this thing that I've said and believe and am passionate about had so infiltrated and splashed onto this kid that he could say almost verbatim what I have said. He's not just parroting back something he's heard me say, he's understanding the value of what I was saying in the context of an answer he's about to give. To me, that's evidence of discipleship. There's something about me that has splashed onto him, and it's now become a part of who he is. And that part now is drawing him closer to Jesus. And we probably have thousands of examples of people in our lives who have splashed onto us somehow and have changed and molded how we see life, how we see Jesus, how we see our life with Jesus. Does anything in your life, Steph, when you think about people who have splashed on you, <laughs> so to speak. Well, Is anything pop into your head? My husband and I have this debate with each other about which of us, so we've been married for um, 15 and a half years, and so we have this debate, who who's influenced the other more? And we have this <laughs> argument back and forth about, are you molding me in your image, or am I molding you in my image? And it's usually a tie. So I, I definitely think that, you know, if you're Gosh, family members come to mind first. Anyone that I spend a decent amount of time with on a regular basis, I'll find myself picking up their mannerisms or their even the way that they talk, their speech. To me, this is really how discipleship actually happens. It's that kind of thing. And like I said, what astonishes me is Paul's focused commitment to being very intentional about that. And when I think about myself as a disciple maker, I, I'm not kidding when I say that I have a lot of room to grow, because I think that I'm quite preoccupied with, in my interactions, how am I coming across in this situation? How am I being received? And I'm not nearly as strategic and focused and just, you know, loving about how am, how am I showing someone freedom and inviting them into it? What's the most, you know strategic way to do that? What's the cleverest way to do that? What's the most powerful way to do that? What do they need from me right now that that will help them understand Jesus a little bit better? I mean, these are not thoughts that go through my mind. I'm thinking, do I have something green in my teeth? Are they are they staring at me like that because there's something green in my... I mean, I'm really distracted, right, by myself. And Paul just seems to be... It's like he just... He left all that behind. And he, when he's staring at you, he is thinking, what's the thing I can say? What's the thing I can do? What's the thing that I can um, pull? What lever can I pull to get this person to understand Jesus the way that I do? And that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. That's disciple-making on a different level than the one I operate on. And it's, it's what we're being called into is living without masks. If we're living without a mask, then what is being influencing others is the truth about our transformed life relative to Jesus. So whatever is is transformed about my heart then gets to spill out if I'm not living behind a mask. It's it's almost like uh, I said at the very start of this that discipleship is re- and maturity is really more like an infection. So if somebody has a cold, but they're trying to insist that they don't, my daughter often does this, by the way, like especially after she has taken my water glass and taken a big <laughs> drink out of it, and she's like, oh no, I don't have a cold, I'm good. Well, if she actually has a cold, it doesn't matter how she's presenting herself. She has the cold virus in her, and I'm going to get it. And it's, it's like what we're talking about now. It brings this all back to the locus point of our own relationship with Jesus. Whatever that's like is the virus that you're spreading. Whatever that's like is the infection that you're infecting others with. No matter how you present yourself, uh, the reality is, I love what you said at the very beginning, we're all discipling all the time. That is the reality. So it's just a matter of what infection, what virus are we infecting other people with? And, and that's why this focus all comes back 
just the way Jesus wanted it to be, which is us in him, he in us, what comes out of that? Um, what, what is it that is coming out of our transformed heart toward him? I was just thinking about this. Uh, uh, when, I, when I was in Kenya, I was with our team leader, Tim Kurth, and I told him at the end of our 10 days in Kenya that one of the highlights of this you know, mind-blowing trip to Africa was really just being around him. And the, the reason I said that is I got to be around him as I saw how he dealt with challenges and difficulties and problems, uh, how he dealt with disappointments, how he dealt with uh, exciting things, his value system relative to what he liked and didn't like. And all of that infected me, and it actually moved me closer to the heart of Jesus the more I was around him. Well, Tim's not perfect, I'm not perfect, but he certainly infected me with uh, some of the character and personality of Jesus just by being around him. So I think what we're saying is the non-compartmentalized life, the congruent life, the unmasked life, is the only life we really have to give. So don't fool yourself. Don't 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 try to game the system. Um, it comes back to what's true about your heart, and that's what drives us and makes us desperate people to be attached to Jesus and abiding in Him. So we get His life flowing in us. That's what we really want when it when it's all said and done. Any last thoughts here about the non-compartmental? I think clearly the moral of the story is that you <laughs> should go forth and infect people. Exactly. Put it on a T-shirt. So, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail, on our Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com page. All you have to do is find the podcast section there, and you're for this episode, you're looking for episode 39. If you're interested in any of the things we talked about, there'll be links to, to those things right there. And don't forget, I mentioned at the very start, uh, one of those links will lead you to our Friends of God Discipleship Experience resource. Please do go check that out. And uh, if you know someone at church, if you feel like, I don't know what I would do with that, well, one way you can change your church culture is by going to the the person who plans and organizes classes and curriculums for your church and talk to them about it and ask if they would be willing to have this experience in your church. It will change the culture of your church the more, the more people go through it. So that's called Friends of God, a Discipleship Experience. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play to make sure you get all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.